Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. There's breaking news as we come on the air this morning. The government has a new website the hospitals can access to see what price they should be paying for any drug covered by 340B. Standing by to report this breaking news story is Maureen Testoni. She is the president and CEO for 340B Health. In other news, MedStar Health will pay $35 million to settle allegations of kickbacks to cardiology docs. Fame whistleblower attorney Mary Inman will have the latest news on this developing story. E&M code changes for 2021 are back in the news. Rack Monitor National Correspondent Jerry Paul Spencer standing by with that report. Nancy Beckley has all the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. We have much news to report. We'll begin this morning with Dr. Howard Stein, who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by Rack University. Here now making Monday rounds is Dr. Howard Stein. Good morning, everybody. 30-day readmission penalty denials are scrapped by by Medicare Managed Care. April Fools. There are few things managed Medicare plans have come up with that are more unfair to hospitals than denials due to a 30-day readmission. Hospitals with contracts with managed Medicare payers must often endure these denials as they are often not excluded in their contracts. Managed Medicare companies cite CMS's readmission policy as the basis for their denials. CMS instructs hospitals to combine a readmission for billing purposes when a patient is readmitted the same calendar day for the same or similar diagnosis. CMS also requests hospital combine admissions when an obvious premature readmission or quality of care issue leads to a readmission. Conversely, most managed Medicare payers deny all readmissions within 30 days of discharge. Hospitals have been working to reduce readmissions for approximately six or seven years. The main causes of readmissions are medication noncompliance and lack of timely physician follow-up. The seven-day readmission occurrence can be reduced by improving these two issues. Hospitals have provided resources to form readmission teams, which work hard to to reduce readmissions. Readmissions after seven days generally are caused by chronically ill elderly patients who need additional care. However, even the best hospital performers among readmissions have readmission rates of approximately 15%. Should managed care be permitted to deny 15% of their admissions to your organization? Some Medicare managed care payers consider reversal of these denials if you can demonstrate readmission for patient noncompliance or no lack of transition of care, but this seems to be the exception. Last week, I had an egregious readmission case. 
an elderly COPD patient was treated for respiratory failure. He was transferred to a subacute facility where he had good physician follow-up and maintained excellent medication compliance. Ten days after hospital discharge, he represented to the emergency department in respiratory failure, was intubated and ventilated. It took two weeks in critical care for this patient to recover. The two-week admission, including his critical care days, were all denied due to the payer's readmission policy. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Hospital contracting and finance must raise their voices regarding this practice. Alternatively, hospitals may consider abandoning their contracts, which forces Medicare managed care to adhere to CMS rules, which does not follow this practice. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Stein. That was Dr. Howard Stein. Dr. Stein is Associate Director of Medical Affairs and Physician Advisor in Care Management at Central State Medical Center in Freehold, New Jersey. Dr. Stein was substituting this morning for Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who's on assignment. Here now with the latest Monitor Monday survey and the Monitor Monday hot topics is Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And you know that a topic is hot. When you get three inquiries in one week on it, including one I got this morning before Monitor Monday started, and the inquiries have to do with providing therapy in a skilled nursing facility to a resident, not somebody that's in a Part A consolidated billing part of stay. So in finding out about the topics in order to give research and regulatory references back, one of the things I came up with is that the consolidated billing for therapies, interestingly enough, has been announced about six weeks ago as a rack automated review. And an automated review means that they can be looking at records through data edits while we're all sleeping at night. So this issue is SNF consolidated billing for therapy on the 1,500 claims for PT, OT, and speech, and it's been approved for all rack regions one to four in all states. So the description of this is physical therapy, speech, language pathology, and occupational therapy are bundled into the SNFs global per diem for a resident's Part A covered stay, but they're subject to the SNF Part B consolidated billing requirements for services furnished to SNF Part B residents. So what does this mean? It means that therapy is a one-off. When therapy services such as PTOT and speech are provided to a resident that's in a non-skilled stay, those services are subject to consolidated billing, and a therapist that provides those services to a resident, for example, would need to look to the SNF for payment. So people always say, what are those types of specialized services that somebody would seek outside of the therapist in the nursing home? Hand therapy is just one of them or aquatic therapy or some of the others. I've put a link um, in the chat box. I think Emily has pushed that out. It's probably in the conference materials where you can get a hold of the latest update from CMS on consolidated billing. And there's a nice chart that's in there on page 9 of 12 showing how consolidated billing works for therapy. Now we'll bring up our April Fool's poll for today. Which CMS changes do you wish were only an April Fool's Day joke? The 340B drug program, TKA removed from the inpatient only list, the moon notice, 
the RAC program or off-campus provider-based charges. So let's have a little bit of fun with this. And what's your wish that CMS would have removed? Thanks. Thank you very much. That was Monitor Money Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest, Maureen Testoni. This is April Fool's Day. It's Monday, the 1st of April, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's information on an important webcast coming up this Thursday. It's about total knee arthroplasty, TKA. In this exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, you'll learn why the status of TKA patients continues to be a peril for facilities and providers. In a vacuum of regulatory ambiguity, audits metastasize. Learn to avoid rack audits and huge takebacks for failing to place TKA patients in the correct status. Join us this Thursday, April 4th, when Dr. Ronald Hirsch will provide a compliant, workable solution to ensure that all patients are placed in the correct status with the best chance of success if audited. Register now to attend Total Knee Arthroplasty. The status controversy continues. For more information and to register, click on the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. Thanks, Clark. And a reminder about the Auditor Monitor. This essential guide is your complete source of healthcare auditing. It's now available at the Rack Monitor web store, and we encourage you to subscribe today. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, i got to ask you, what's risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So I have something that no normal person would think of as risky, the risk of being organized. And anyone who could see my office would know it's not a risk I face. So at AHLA a couple of weeks ago, the American Health Lawyers Association, I was lucky enough to be on a pa- pa- panel with Aaron uh, Ramaya from Wachler & Associates, Uh, and Judge Griswold from the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. Judge Griswold offered a number of tips about how to best present your case to an ALJ. To my shock, some of the things that you might, a normal person might think would help you present your case coherently won't work, and in some cases, they might be negative. So the first thing is that during a telephone hearing, it can be incredibly difficult to make sure everyone is looking at the same piece of paper. So we asked the judge what the judges actually see. So an electronic document system should be in place by the end of the year, but currently the judges work off of a paper file. And it's vitally important to understand how that file is created. The staff takes what you produce and they copy it. And if you send in a fancy book with nice tabs that you think are going to make it easier for the judge to flip to a particular document, when the office is copying the information, all of those tabs are removed and they don't appear in the copy. So instead of tabs, it's best to use a slip sheet that simply has like tab one on it typed on the piece of paper itself. Now, obviously, this is much harder to use than an actual tab, but it's the only way the judge is going to know what you're referring to. Second, the office prefers that you don't use Bates numbers on your documents. Now, lawyers use Bates numbers as a method to identify each page in a production. Since the court uses its own numbering system, they think using Bates numbers adds to the confusion in the record. Now, I found that piece of advice shocking, and I'm still not sure whether I want to follow it, because it's such a good way to be able to know that the record is complete and that everything you sent is really there. Speaking of ensuring a complete record, 
you have the right to review the entire record. So it's possible to ask for the court to send you a CD of the record. Now, Judge Griswold was clear that she hopes you'll make these, rec these requests judiciously, so to speak. Um, you know, you don't want to do it on a hearing if it only involves a small dollar amount. But if you're working on a case with a lot of monetary impact, this is a real option that's available to you. They can burn a CD and send it to you. Um, another option, if you have a large, complicated case, is to request an in-person hearing. Erin uh, shared the story of a week-long hearing she did, which was a hospice appeal involving $3 million in claims. Now, in-person appeals are granted at the discretion of the judge, and there were only about a dozen of them last year. So obviously you're not going to request that for an inpatient denial or two, but if you've got what we often call a big box appeal where you're dealing with um, you know, maybe hundreds of cases and possibly hundreds or thousands, if not millions of dollars, it's worth a thought. Judge Griswold also made it clear that the limitations on new evidence don't prevent you from making new arguments at a higher level of appeal. As she put it, if you have a eureka moment right before a hearing, you absolutely can and should present that argument to the judge. But if there's some new document um, or you locate a new piece of the medical record, you're going to need to ask the judge's permission to include it and hope that the judge determines that there's good cause. By contrast, if you find a new case that supports your position, that's an argument and you're welcome to introduce it. So Chuck, on behalf of the American Health Lawyers Association, Aaron and I want to thank Judge Griswold for taking the time to appear. I should probably have a song like Ship of Fools, given it's April 1st, but since we're talking about Judge Griswold, I think the song has to be Lindsey Buckingham's Holiday Road. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm McFederson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And joining us now with the latest update to AMA's 2021 E&M changes is Rackpot International Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. As you might expect, uh, the AMA, the American Medical Association, has weighed in on the proposed E&M changes that were brought forth in last year's Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule by CMS that were later not adopted in the final rule, but were instead deferred to the year of 2021. Now, when this deferral happened at the time the final rule was released, it was thought that perhaps this was going to be another repeat of the ICD-10 debacle, where ICD-10 is adopted and it's not adopted and the can gets continuously kicked down the road. Instead, what we have seen over the past few weeks is that the American Medical Association is now uh, putting forward complementary guidance based on the suggested changes uh, of CMS to evaluation and management services. Now, there are five key takeaways that we have and these uh, takeaways are lined up and uh, explained uh, from uh, a wonderful article that is now on available on Rack Monitor by Shannon DeConda, who I am stepping in today for because she is my boss. Uh, but I will bring forward these five changes in a nutshell. The first is the deletion of CPT code 99201 
based on utilization, the AMA has decided to remove this CPT code. And this was based more on the fact that when you have this service uh, put forward, uh, it, chances are that uh, it's only being used when you didn't have sufficient documentation for other new patient E&M services. And the AMA is also removing history and, and exam as key components to an E&M service. Uh, there are now new definitions for medical decision-making components. Uh, they are modifying the definition of time-based services and what is included in time. And based on all of these sections, we can probably assume that there are going to be changes to the uh, guideline section within E&M services. Now, removing exam and history as a as key components, there are there was one change with with regard to history that should be pointed out uh, that has been adapted by most of the Macs that are out there. Uh, what we have now is guidance that is being put forward by CMS that there are now some history components that may be documented or completed by someone other than the provider as long as the provider is updating, supplementing, or approving the recorded chief complaint history of present illness review of systems and past family social history that has been put forth by ancillary staff. So. The whole history is not considered to be provider-level work. So in this particular case, the AMA is removing these uh, uh, barriers to sele the selection of an ENM code. Uh, now, it's important to understand that the AMA is telegraphing these changes that are being brought forward to coincide with CMS and their proposed changes from last year being deferred to the year 2021. So the AMA review committees and the RUC committees have decided to make these, uh, propose these changes to, to take place at the same time that CMS makes these E&M changes. There will be a lot more information coming up on these proposed changes, but we at the very least can give you a skeletal outline. And I know that our uh, producers here have the link to that great article on Rack Monitor written by Shannon DeConda that will go into uh, great detail about uh, the changes that are proposed by the AMA. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Rack Monitor National Correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. Thanks again, Paul, for being on our broadcast. MedStar Health of Maryland has agreed to pay the government $35 million to resolve allegations under the False Claims Act that it paid kickbacks to a cardiology group. Here now is Payne Whistleblower Attorney Mary Inman, who joins us with the latest news on this major story. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. No fooling. We'll talk about a $35 million settlement today. MedStar Health, a health system in Maryland and Washington, D.C., and two of its hospitals have settled allegations that they violated the False Claims Act by violating the anti-kickback statute arising from two lawsuits brought by cardiologists and patient whistleblowers. The $35 million settlement is not a determination of liability. It settles specific allegations that MedStar paid kickbacks to Mid-Atlantic Cardiovascular Associates a, a cardiology group based in Maryland in exchange for referrals. Broadly speaking, the anti-kickback statute prohibits hospitals, physicians, pharmacies, nursing homes, durable medical, 
equipment companies, pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers, and other medical providers from paying or receiving kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of value in exchange for referrals of patients who will receive treatment paid for by government health care programs such as Medicare and Medicaid. The law seeks to prevent physicians prescribing medically unnecessary medications or recommending unneeded tests. The anti-kickback statute is also intended to ensure that a physician's medical judgment is not compromised by financial incentives and is solely based on the best interests of the patient. The kickbacks were allegedly paid under the guise of professional services agreements that exceeded fair market value. In exchange for the group referring its patients to MedStar hospitals for expensive cardiac procedures, including various cardiac surgeries. Some of the services promised, it, promised in and paid for by the agreements were never provided. The alleged conduct occurred between 2006 and 2011. The government settled a related action brought by the same lawsuit against another hospital, St. Joseph Medical Center, in 2010. That hospital paid $22 million for conduct occurring between 1996 and 2006. St. Joseph's also signed a corporate integrity agreement with the Department of Health and Human Services. The agreement addressed patient care issues and required the hospital to employ a peer review consultant to ensure accurate billing. This settlement also resolves allegations that a former Mid-Atlantic Cardiovascular Associates physician who later worked for MedStar performed unnecessary stent procedures between 2006 and 2012. Under Medicaid and Medicare rules, only procedures that are reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis or treatment of an illness or injury are eligible for reimbursement. The previous settlement against St. Joseph's Medical Center also resolved allegations that yet another Mid-Atlantic Cardiovascular Associates physician performed unnecessary stent procedures. Each of the alleged frauds were revealed by whistleblowers in two different lawsuits. The kickback allegations were brought by three cardiac surgeons, and the medical necessity allegations were brought by former patients. Whistleblowers stand to be awarded between 15 and 25% of government recoveries in cases such as this one. In this case, the whistleblowers who brought the kickback allegations will receive $5.18 million, and the whistleblowers who brought the medical necessity allegations will receive $420,000. Vigilant eyes of doctors, nurses, administrative professionals, and hospital employees will be essential in combating the increasing number of alleged frauds involving kickbacks, given that these relationships are often opaque and require perspective from insiders. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. Last Monday, we identified the names of drug manufacturers that are responsible for the high-priced prescription drugs. This morning, in part two of our series about prescription drug prices, we are joined by Maureen Testoni. Maureen is the president and CEO for 340B Health, and this morning she reports a breaking news story. Today is a very good day for hospitals and other safety net providers who participate in the 340B drug pricing program. After nine long years of waiting, the federal government is launching a new secure website that will finally allow hospitals, clinics, and health centers participating in 340B to see the maximum price drug companies uh, can charge for 340B drugs. 
As you know, 340B requires drug companies to discount the prices they charge to certain healthcare providers. These providers meet strict standards to qualify for the 340B discount. The most important of these is they must serve large numbers of people living with low incomes. These include people who are uninsured and those who are covered by Medicaid. The savings these safety net providers receive are then invested in serving more patients who are in need, and they help expand the type of services they can deliver to their patients. Thanks to these discounts on drugs, 340B hospitals are able to provide 60% of hospital uncompensated care in the nation, even though they represent only 38% of acute care hospitals. 340B hospitals are also responsible for providing two-thirds of all Medicaid hospital care, even though Medicaid significantly underpays hospitals. And they offer vital services that often cost more to provide than they are paid. These include things like trauma care, care for people with HIV, AIDS, and treatment for opioid use disorders. For too long, 340B providers have been operating in the dark not knowing what the ceiling prices were for the products they were buying. A series of reports by the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General documented multiple cases of 340B providers being charged too much for drugs by drug manufacturers. They also found drug companies didn't always calculate the 340B prices correctly and that nobody was confirming whether what the price is that drug companies should be charging. In 2010, Congress followed the Inspector General's advice and passed a law taking two important steps. First, it created a set of penalties for manufacturers if they knowingly and intentionally overcharge a 340B provider. Second, Congress directed the government to collect and review drug pricing information from manufacturers and make the correct data available to 340B providers on a secure website. But implementation and enforcement of the 2010 law took much longer than expected, and creation of the website was delayed over and over again. That led my organization, 340B Health, several of our hospital members, and three other national hospital associations to go to court to force action on this issue. Fortunately, the government responded to the legal pressure and the rules went into effect on January 1st. So starting in January, the government began collecting pricing data and reviewing its accuracy. And today, the government is finally launching the ceiling price website so that we can check to see whether providers are being charged the correct price. Now, there's probably going to be some uh, bumps on the road ahead as we work out the details for the ceiling price website and make sure that everything is smooth and accurate and I know our hospital members stand ready to help in any way they can. Today starts a new era of transparency and accountability for the makers of 340B drugs. Let's take a moment to celebrate and thank the Health Resources and Services Administration for the hard work they put into building this site. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Maureen, very much. That was the President and CEO for 340B Health. Maureen Tostoni, Marie, thank you again very much for being on our program. And now's the time for the Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Chuck, let's just take a look at what our listeners were wishing were an April Fool's joke. And true to form, Chuck, 49% of our listeners were hoping that CMS would announce that the RAC program was a joke. Another 20% said TKA removed from the inpatient only list. 
followed by 10% for the off-campus provider-based charges at 10 and then 9 each for the 340B drug program and the moon notice. So happy April Fool's Day, everyone. We'll convey your results to CMS. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. By the way, Nancy, I always ask you this. Any surprises in today's poll? <laughs> no, and actually, I think that, you know, because we've varied a little bit off since our program started, Chuck, in 2010 off of the RAC program and looking at other areas, it's refreshing to see that people still have the same feelings about the RAC program they've had since the beginning. Some things never change, do they, Nancy? David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in, and you have a question in particular for Maureen. I do, but before we get to that one, speaking of April Fools, one listener asked if we could uh, share the actual news release or CMS notification that CMS will be refunding all RAC denials um, based on Dr. Salvador's notice sent out in RAC relief. And just, I don't know if the questioner was onto that one or not, but that was definitely an April Fools joke there. So the short answer is no, we can't. So Maureen, my question for you is, do you think, is the new website going to have a material impact for 340B providers? Yes, David. I definitely think it'll have a very uh, important impact. I mean, keep in mind, nobody has been checking these prices, um, and, and the providers can't even see what they are. And given that the inspector general found widespread overcharging and nobody has been checking to see if it would go away, I think we're going to see a really big difference once this goes into effect, and especially after it's been in effect for a couple of quarters. Thanks so much, Maureen. And Chaka, happy March 32nd, and back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Mary Inman, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest this morning, Maureen Tostoni from 340B Health. And I want to thank you so much for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Modern to Monday. In the meantime, I hope you're going to join me this Thursday for the Dr. Ronald Hurst webcast on Totally. It's coming your way at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you so very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.